So as a church, we have been in the New Testament book of Luke for the past 20 weeks now. And as we enter part 20 of this series around Easter season, especially around Palm Sunday, it is very fitting that we hit chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, which is the classic Palm Sunday scene told through Luke's unique perspective. So I would recommend getting this in front of you. We are going to read it through in one shot, which is a bit out of the ordinary, verses 28 to 48, a bigger chunk than maybe we would want to have in a single sitting. Uh, it's longer than a tweet, longer than the few seconds you'd absorb through a screen typically. You'll probably miss things, you'll probably get distracted, but, but try and capture as much as possible as we begin and then head into a bit more detail beyond that. So here we go, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28 and following, which says this, And when he had said these things, that's Jesus, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. We made it. Okay. What is your first impression? When you, when you go through a scene like this, a chunk like this, what's your reaction to the story? What's your reaction to the text? Over the past few days, I've read this story out loud to a bunch of people who didn't have it in front of them in a similar way I read it to you. And I got some first impressions. I got some authentic reactions. So, so let me introduce you to a little segment of this talk I'm going to call First Impressions with Jesse. First Impressions! 
Thanks to our uh, in-house studio band for that little uh, number. Uh, what I want to do is I want to read you some of my favorite first impressions coming out of this text. Let's see how many of these are similar to the ones you had, maybe a bit different from what you would say. Uh, that was a lot of verses. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, number two, I was struck by the willingness of the disciples to simply obey and trust Jesus' instruction. Another one, using the phrase, the Lord has need of it, is something that probably wouldn't work so well today. Imagine grabbing a TV from Walmart and telling the employees on the way out, the Lord has need of it. I don't know if I would want to try that. Uh, another one, why is it important that no one had sat on the donkey? Why are they celebrating when Jesus hasn't yet finished his main work? It's an interesting point. There's still more to come in the story. What is the motivating, or what is motivating the response of the Pharisees? Another one, the scene goes from something like the Super Bowl parade to somber. It gets suddenly serious. The sequence of events with Jesus in the temple sounds like he's going out of his way to get canceled. Fascinating. And then one more. The people had their idea of what the church should be, or the temple, I guess. But Jesus goes in and messes that up. Okay, so th there's lots of real and uh, interesting stuff there. It, it reminds me that we can't always cover every possible thing in, in a setting like this. It might be worthwhile checking out in your community group, discussing it with some, some others. Uh, we are, however, going to hit as much of this as we can over the next few minutes and uh, try to develop some second thoughts coming out of these first impressions. And I'm going to rally around three words, three ideas that stood out to me as, as we read through this several times this week. And the three words are this, and I think they capture a lot of what goes on here. The words are Jerusalem, King, and finally the word words. So let's go through this a bit more slowly, starting with the word Jerusalem and unpacking what's around that. Look again at verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. If we were watching the Gospel of Luke like we watch a TV show, we would be aware that as we enter this scene, that there has been a bit of a build up to this point and specifically build up around this location. We would see this city, we would see Jerusalem, and we would have this sense of dread. Oh no, we're here. It's here. Why? Because look at what Luke has highlighted already beforehand. Going back to Luke chapter 9, there's a scene on a mountain where Jesus was, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, crazy, and spoke of his departure, or his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to where? Jerusalem. A couple chapters later on this journey, Luke 13. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow. This is Jesus talking and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish, perish away from Jerusalem. And then we get to Luke 18, and taking the 12, his, his 12 closest followers, the disciples, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man, the term used for Jesus, everything written about me by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, over to the Roman authorities of the time, and, he, and will be mocked and shamefully treated 
and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Wait, what? You're, Jesus, you're going to depart? Jesus, you're going to be handed over? Jesus, you're going to be shamefully treated? You're going to be mocked? Jesus, you're going to be spat upon? Jesus, you're going to be whipped? Jesus, you're going to be killed? And, and where is this going to happen? Jerusalem. Like, feel, feel some of that slow motion, dramatic tension as, as all of this journey in Luke's writing for these 19 chapters now slows down, zeroes in on this person of Jesus entering this scene. And there's a lot of weight to what is going on here. There are a lot of serious events that are in immediate sight. There, there was a movie uh, this, that came out uh, recently, and it's nominated for Best Picture this year, called The Trial of the Chicago 7. And in it, there's a scene where a character in, in one breath uh, lumps three historical figures together and describes what happened to them. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and Jesus. And, and he talks about how all of them were murdered. And, and it's interesting that the character in that movie lumped them all together. Uh, but what distinguishes Jesus from that and distinguishes him in Luke's gospel is that as Luke is retelling history and as he's investigated this and, and brought this uh, as, a, as a careful summary of, of what went on in Jesus' life, what we're seeing is that there, there's not some sort of accidental moment where Jesus' life is cut short like other people. It's not like he's just accidentally assassinated and then that just stops everything. No, there's something deliberate here. And as we enter this, this Palm Sunday moment, as we come to the start of this chapter, we, we shouldn't miss that. We shouldn't miss that there is purpose here, that there's a deliberateness here, that there's a courageousness to Jesus as he knows what he is heading into. And I hope that we know that as we see what unfolds next. Our faith is not built on a series of unfortunate, random, or accidental events. Now, we have, we have a confident trust in an unstoppable God who accomplishes his plans. Which, which to me, man, that, that is, I, I take such comfort in that and encouragement in knowing that because the world is full of, of tragic, random, accidental, and, and terrible situations and events. Like the 10 people who were killed a couple days ago in Colorado in a mass shooting. There's, in, in life, there is going to be pain. But for Jesus, the pain he's heading towards is purposeful. The pain he's heading towards does not hinder his plans. It actually accomplishes his plans. A second word that represents a lot of what is going on here. We've covered Jerusalem. Let's look at this word, king. Going to verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So a couple points uh, coming out of this scene alone. First, that this is an unexpected and beautiful moment. Look at verse 35. And throwing their cloaks, so they take off their garments, throwing their cloaks on the colt that they had fetched, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So in a, in a similar way to moments from Israel's past where, where a king was being celebrated and acknowledged by the act of laying down clothing, uh, like in 2 Kings 9, for example, 
these people, they're going down this steep path to this significant city. Uh, they're entering this, what's called the Kidron Valley, and the crowd starts to sing part of a, a great psalm of praise that had been used for that by pilgrims on their journey to Jerusalem, Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is, a, this is a song of victory. This is a hymn of praise to God who, who defeats all his enemies, who establishes his kingdom. And, and this time, though, it's not just any person that's coming. No, what Luke has pointed out here is that the people use a specific term. Blessed is the king. It's the king who's coming in the name of the Lord. And, and this important word, combined with this little detail that they set Jesus on the donkey, a lot of scholars think this is suggestive of enthronement for royalty. And remember, this is God's plan all along. The opening words of Luke said this, that this is about the narrative of the things that have been, what, accomplished, accomplished among us. And this is now happening. The nation of Israel, the people of God, they've been waiting. They've been waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting for a God's chosen Savior to come. And a key promise about how this Messiah was going to come, a key promise about how God was going to fulfill this plan, came from a place in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Hundreds of years, hundreds of pages in our Bible before Jesus. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And, and in, in that time, Zechariah's prophecy about the Messiah was that he was going to be seen as the prince of peace. So, so these disciples, they're, they're, now, they're now streaming to Jerusalem for the, the Passover celebration uh, there. And they knew, they, they knew. And, and as we would know, Jesus had done a lot of many mighty works. So, so they, for a long time, they, they had watched, they had waited, they had hoped that, that Jesus would identify himself as Messiah. They, they, they had all this expectation of when is God going to do this? And now they saw him doing so. So, so your first impression is, you know, why? it seems kind of odd to celebrate when Jesus still has a lot of work to do. Well, actually, look, look again. When, when people rode into city like this in similar ways back then, it wasn't to claim kingship. Oftentimes, it presupposed that a victory had already taken place. He was riding, Jesus is riding into the capital in a way that fulfilled this ancient prophecy. He is showing himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. And what kind of Messiah is he? Again, what kind of king? What should we think of when we think of Jesus as king? Well, look what he's riding on. He's riding on a colt, a young donkey. So you have this first impression about, well, why is it important that it's a donkey? Why is it important that maybe no one had ever sat on it in the first place? Well, in that time, with the expectation about God's kingdom coming, it was about bringing an impressive victory through conquest. And in that case, what you'd expect is a king coming not on a donkey, but coming on a war horse. This is what kings would do. So when, when, when a king would come on a donkey, when Jesus is coming on a donkey, they're seeing a different image. They're seeing a different symbol. And riding in a donkey would have been a, a declaration, not of war, but of peace. Peace in heaven and glory 
in the highest. So Jesus, with his action, he's coming as a king of love. He's coming as a king of peace, not as a conquering military hero whom, you know, all these crowds had expected and awaited, but his victory would be through humble sacrifice. And remember, it's the sacrifice of the Son of God, one who lived a perfect life to, to exchange his right for, the, for humanity's wrong. And perhaps the fact that the cult had never been ridden points to the sacredness of this act. You read Numbers chapter 19 or Deuteronomy chapter uh, uh, 21, that an unbroken beast of burden, these were regarded as sacred. There's, there's a purity to this. It's also the sacrifice of the one who has, is the creator of all things. Colossians 1 talks about how Jesus, everything was made by him and for him. So what normally would have been a, a difficult, what normally would have been sort of a crazy thing to try to ride an, an unbroken animal with, with all the, the stimulation of a crowd around, when Jesus can do this, it's, it's as if he's showing, look, there, there's power in the one who is riding on this animal. When you think about Jesus... What do, you, what do you think about him? When, you, when it comes to singing songs about Jesus, when it comes to sacrificing financially for the causes of Jesus, when it comes to, to choosing the way of Jesus over the values of your friends, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to you know, enduring difficulty or inconvenience in the way of Jesus, what do you think of? When you think of Jesus, what picture do you have of him? Like life, life is hard. Is, is there something about him that makes him worthy or helpful when, when it's hard to endure as one of his followers? If your first impression, as you, as you see this, based on the picture you have, if your first impression is, why are, why are the Pharisees responding? Why are the religious leaders, the religious people responding and resisting all of this? Well, it's because to them, this is blasphemy. You can't, you can't glorify this man in the way that you could glorify God. What, what is going on here? See, we're, we're seeing a clash of worldview. And you, you know, you've heard of, of Godzilla versus Kong. Well, how about, the, how about the clash over what is God like? What about the, the fight over what is, what is salvation really? What is God's rescue plan really? What is, what is, what is religious authority? And, and notice that when Jesus responds to them and, and, and doesn't you know, tell them to stop, He's actually affirming the, the, the people's claims about him. He's not shutting it down. This, this is not only a, a beautiful moment, but this is also a deliberate and controversial moment. So, so when we think of Palm Sunday, it is right to think about the arrival of a hero. But he is one that is so different from what was expected then and also what might be understood even today. And I, and I think for the challenge for me and the challenge for all of us is, as we approach Easter is, is to not get Jesus wrong. To not have a wrong idea, a wrong understanding, a wrong picture about him. Let, let, let's be careful to see who he is here. He is the king. He's not just a, a nice teacher with some good advice. He's not just a miracle worker with some, some good deeds for us to enjoy. He's not just a, like a travel agent who, who gives us a ticket to get to some place called heaven someday. The, the story of the Bible co confronts us with, with claims about events in history. So these aren't, just, these aren't just principles for our own therapy. No, this is about a person to be honored deeply, loved fully, trusted fully, obeyed fully. 
even today. And you know, you know something I've been wondering about is we've we've all kind of crossed the the one year mark uh, of living in a pandemic, something that's very unfamiliar and jarring for for all of us. And and I, and I know that we have been forming new habits with the new routine of life that we've been forced into living. And I know for me. I'm spending a lot more time online, so at the end of my workday, I'm doing things that seem a lot more introverted. Uh, I, you know, I, I've got new habits in, in our home. I, I'm, you know, rather than buying bread, I'm making bread. My kids are a lot more into to Lego, and we're doing all this stuff. It's like stuff like that. And, you know, maybe you're, maybe you've got into the whole Peloton trend, and now rather than exercising at a gym, you're exercising at home. You're, you're way more familiar with with food delivery apps or something. We, we've all been forming new habits, and it's these things that started a year ago have shaped who we are today, and will shape who we are beyond the pandemic. Which leaves me wondering, what are, what are the habits that, that I have formed? What are the things that I have been doing to treat Jesus seriously? Like, like what rooms in my life that I spend time in, is, is he actually important? What are, the, what are the spaces where I'm concerned about what he would think about? What he would say, what he would do, how he would respond? Because what we see in this scene and what I recognize in myself that what I think and what I would do is, is actually often different from what Jesus would think and what Jesus would do. Which leads me to, to a third focus of today. It's this word, words. The, the last verse in this passage talks about the people hanging on his words. And, and before we get to those compelling words that they are hanging on, we also see other words. We see these powerful descriptions of what happens following this, this joyous celebration. So, you know, you, you say your first impression is that things get, get real really quick. Well, they do. They go from jubilation first then to wailing. Look at, look at verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Like, imagine a Jesus with a voice that is choked up with tears and, 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 and struggling to get these words out in, in sorrow. You know, Jesus sees how much is at stake here. And I think it's, it's easy to miss when we just see the word peace without understanding all of what is underneath and what all is meant by that word. One scholar helps us see the big deal that this is. Peace, he says in Luke, has no connection to harmony with the Roman Empire, which was the occupying power of the time, or with temple leadership, which is the religious power of the time, nor does it refer to subjective, or individualistic tranquility. So it's not just about what makes me feel okay, which man, that that is hard to, to, to handle or even see past in, in 2021 here. But he goes on, peace rather is a soteriological term, which is a big word meaning it's, it's connected to the concept of salvation or rescue, God's rescue. It's a term about that. It's about shalom, this, this biblical word for, about peace and justice, the gift of God that embraces salvation for all in all of its social, material, and spiritual realities. If, if you are on a rescue mission to bring a, a peace of that magnitude and people are missing it, it is no wonder things get serious so fast. I love how William Barclay writes about this. He says that the tears of Jesus are the tears of God 
when he sees the needless pain and suffering in which men and women involve themselves through foolish rebelling against his will. Like what, what this tells me, what this should tell all of us is that Jesus wants people to know him. Jesus wants people to know the truth and not miss it. And you, you know what this did this week for me? As I, I was thinking about this uh, uh, across the last few days, it's really motivated me to, to want to pray for people that don't really know Jesus right now that wouldn't claim to be a Christian, that wouldn't claim to have given their lives over to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, the one to rescue them from their sins, the one to lead them into new life now and forever. It really like sparked a, a fresh desire, honestly, for me to pray for those by name and make a list and, and commit to praying for them. And, and maybe this is something you, maybe this is something your family wants to do as, as we see Jesus in this scene, as we see the King cry in this scene for those who don't know him. And I, I think Luke is also, you know, telling us, and secondly, that contrary to, to popular belief today, even popular belief within the church, that there are things that we can do that grieve Jesus and put us in harm's way. That doesn't mean he loves us any less. Just like I can love my kids and be grieved that they are doing something that is going to hurt them or empty their lives, so too with Jesus. This is something we see here. And I, and I think Luke is asking me to take Jesus seriously because it's not good when people get him wrong. We can't get him wrong. And, and for this city, this meant that decades later, in AD 70, this city was going to be destroyed thoroughly. They were headed on a, on a bad religious and a bad political path that resulted in exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus had sad words, but then he also has angry words. So you say your, your first impression of these events in the temple sounds like Jesus is going out of his way to, to get canceled, going out of his way to put himself in bad public opinion, going out of his, you know, you say he's going in to, to mess up their idea of religion. Well, well, no kidding. Look at verse 45 again. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. It's believed that where this takes place is in the place called the court of the Gentiles in, in the temple. This is the place where people who are not Jewish could, could come in and visit. And it was supposed to be a place of access. It was supposed to be a place where people could pray and, and connect with God, but instead... It had become a place where the poor were swindled, where, where the innocent were victimized by the merchants there. So our king, purposefully, courageously, he's coming to set all things right. And it is going to be, and as it was, controversial, scandalous, humiliating, and eventually deadly. And what Luke draws our attention to here is, is heavy. What it took to bring us, what it took to bring me, ultimate peace, in the fullest sense of the word, was not easy. What it took to bring restoration to the world was not simple. What it took to go through Palm Sunday all the way through to Easter Sunday, it displays the power, it displays the humility, it displays the love of Jesus. And as much as our mood, as much as our mental health, as much as our political stability, as much as our culture might oscillate and, and go back and forth between good and bad, hard and easy, straightforward and confusing, what we see in Jesus is that he has the joy to step in to all of this 
and leave a lasting impression on the whole world. And where this leaves me is with a last impression today. How can I live like this story really matters today? Originally, I I didn't have a a specific answer to that question. Originally, actually, I was just going to cut here. That would be the end of the message, and and we would just move on with our day. But but a few hours ago, I was in a prayer meeting with with a couple of guys, and and God really stirred something in me to identify what I could do with, with all of what was in my mind about this text and about this scene and about the claims of Jesus. And I, and I think it's this, that for me to live as if this story really matters, for you to live as if this story really matters, is to live a life of uncompromising devotion to Jesus. Because if he really is the king, this is, this is a call to conviction, not a call to compromise. And, and it can feel hard to do this. It, it often, sometimes, you know, feels like we, like we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus in, in our culture and in, in this, this post-Christian you know, age are, are on the, the margins of culture. Or we're, we're on the fringes of society. We're doing something that, that's totally irrelevant and useless and, and all of that. But if this is true, we're actually linked up, connected to, in relationship with following the one who is the king at the center of reality. Man, like I, I grew up and I often felt like I was alone when it came to my faith. In, in elementary school, in middle school, all the way through to late high school, uh, I didn't have friends uh, or even really know anybody my age who claimed to be a Christian. I'm not sitting in class with people who are following Jesus and, and can, can join me in that. And so it made sense that the people I was friends with sometimes noticed uh, certain things about me, things that were different than the way they would talk, different from the way they would live, different from the way uh, they would you know, spend their free time. And, and they, they would point that out to me and, and I would feel awkward because I wouldn't want to explain fully the reason for that. I didn't want to be misunderstood. I didn't want to be ostracized, made fun of. I didn't want to feel alone. And even now as a, as, a, as a pastor in 2021, and maybe this is the way you feel, it sometimes feels like you're alone. You, you see, and I see the, the social media posts. We, we hear the jokes on, on TV shows. We, we, we watch a generation go through disillusionment and, and deconstruction. And, and we, when we see all of, of this, the tide of, of, of where society heads, and we go, man, am I doing what's worth it? Am I, does this story really matter to me? Am I backing a failing investment? Am I supporting a dying cause? Am I following a losing leader? But if the claims of this story are true, we're not on the fringe of society. We're following the, the one who's the king at the center of reality. And man, is that ever a, 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 a joyous and motivating factor when it comes to living a life of uncompromising devotion to Jesus. It's not going to be easy. There, yes, oh yes, we're going we're gonna to find this to be difficult and inconvenient and frustrating at times. We're, we are going to be misunderstood. Oh, things are going to sometimes get you know, tough for us in life. There are going to be situations we can't figure out how God is fitting into them. There's going to be prayers that go unanswered. There's going to be a lot of things that we get confused by and, and derailed by and disappointed by. Things might get chaotic. They might get dark, as they very much did even for his first followers, just scenes later from the scene we've looked at today. 
People who are celebrating Jesus go to mourning Jesus. People who are, are hopeful go to hopeless as their king goes to be publicly humiliated, tortured, murdered, and buried. But then what we know of Easter is that he doesn't stay dead. He's the king then, he's the king now, and he's going to be the king forever. And if this is not an encouragement to live a life of uncompromising devotion to him, I do not know what is. Could you imagine yourself? Could you imagine your family? Could you imagine our church? If we followed this king wherever he goes.